The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. In an earlier version of this episode, we mispronounced Gary Hirschberg's name. We apologize for that error, and it's been corrected. Yogurt started in this country as plain, one type, that's it. Kind of like the original Ford, right? You can have any color as long as it's black. And today... The average supermarket in the United States has more than 200 choices of yogurt in it. And yet, Americans are still consuming yogurt one-fifth the rate of our European counterparts. Jenny Kaplan, and I'm here with a special guest host, Craig Giamona, who's backed by popular demand to walk us through what's happening with one of America's favorite breakfast products, yogurt. It's good to be back on Material World. We've talked before a lot about some of the problems that big food, the large food companies are having, and how that's changing uh, the grocery landscape. And this week, we decided to dig into yogurt because it provides really a good window onto why some of these large food companies are struggling and what they're doing to respond. food companies are really having a tough time. Consumers these days are attracted to smaller upstarts that cater to more of what they're looking for, clean labels and better ingredients. In yogurt, that really came in the form of one company, Chobani. That's right. I mean, the story of yogurt really the last 10 years has been Greek yogurt. Um, Americans essentially didn't eat Greek yogurt before Chobani burst onto the scene in 2007. And Greek now is something like 50% of the market. So it's really been driving the growth in the category. And that's a part of the reason, a big part of the reason why you're seeing all those new products pop up on the shelves in the dairy case. So, Craig, you cover yogurt. How big is the industry overall? What kind of growth have we been seeing? You know, it's something like $9 billion in the U.S. And the sales have gained about 25% since 2011. So those are the kind of numbers that obviously catch the attention of the food companies. You know, a big thing like I said with the shift to Greek, was that it had more protein. So that kind of hit one of the big-time trends, people looking for protein, less sugar. Greek yogurt burst onto the scene. And that's how we kind of get to today with $9 billion in sales and about 50% of that coming from Greek. The Greek yogurt has really taken away from the big incumbents here. Who really made up the bulk of the yogurt industry before? Right. So, so Chobani's success has really come at the expense of General Mills, which makes the Yoplate brand. Yoplate for years was the leading brand of yogurt in the U.S., but in 2016, Chobani passed them for the first time. So it's pretty amazing that this company, Chobani, which didn't exist, you know, it was founded in 2005, is now the leading brand. And then there's Danon, which is uh, the, the U.S. arm of the French company Danone. 
they remain the leading seller of yogurt overall. They have several brands, so they're still a powerhouse, but you know, their sales have, have kind of been flat, so they're looking to kind of defend their turf as well. So much like other parts of the food industry, the big yogurt companies have been challenged by these small small companies, but unlike most areas, Chobani's one example where this, this upstart has actually overtaken the big incumbent giants. Yeah, that's why I think yogurt is so interesting because, I mean, we see these big food companies struggling. You know, I think something like the largest 10 food companies in the U.S. have lost $16 billion in sales over the last three years. And it's pretty staggering numbers when you look at the revenue that's being posted by companies like General Mills, Kellogg, Campbell, uh, Kraft Heinz. There's been these all these struggles, and the story is that you know these products that dominated the grocery store for you know 30 or 40 years, they're just facing challenges from you know companies that do are doing things a little bit different. Whether it's better ingredients or cleaner labels, better packaging, the food world has really been shaken up. And like you said, the reason why yogurt is so interesting is because in yogurt we have the upstart company has actually taken over the lead of the category. So I think yogurt kind of gives us a window onto everything that's going on. And, you know, possibly we'll see that as we go forward in some other categories too, which is why it's so interesting. To get a sense of what it was like to build a successful yogurt business before the rise of Greek, we talked with Gary Hirschberg, chairman of Stonyfield, which was a pioneer in organic yogurt. Stonyfield, which started as a tiny company in New Hampshire, was acquired by Dannon and was later sold to Lactalis for $875 million. Well, we started the company as a seven-cow organic farming school back in 1983. I often say that the, we had a wonderful company back then, just no supply and no demand. The, the world had, was not yet ready for organic, but we really began this with a sort of more academic and public health and, and uh, philanthropic uh, idea that, that we, we all are what we eat, that organic is really preventative health, and that new discoveries in, in the world of organic agriculture really needed to find their way to the consumer. So we, we actually launched this little yogurt company uh, as a way to help fund our farming school. Eventually, we retired the school. Um, in those days, yogurt was, was really two categories. It was big cups and little cups. You know, the modern consumer forgets now that we have squeezables and drinkables and and grass-fed and Greek and and all. But it was a pretty simple category back then. And and frankly, it wasn't always the healthiest food. There were a lot of sugars, um, a lot of gelatins and fillers. And and so when we first started introducing ourselves to supermarkets with my partner's very clean uh minimal ingredient label, uh, m- most uh, just raised their eyebrows and thought, well, this stuff will never sell. It's, it's not sweet enough or it's not, uh, you know, we weren't using Disney characters on the, the label. But while per capita consumption was very low in those days, things really started to take off. We, we, we really hit our timing just right in the early 80s through, throughout the rest of that decade. The category itself, and this is well before Greek, grew about 19 to 20% annually. Back when Stonyfield started, the idea of organic yogurt seemed crazy, but times have changed. None of the big uh, Fortune 100s or, or multinationals were in the space at all. Anybody in organic in those days was a startup. Um, you know, I think the buyers had two concerns. One, we were coming in with a much higher cost yogurt. When, when we launched our dollar sixty nine quarts of yogurt, the highest price out there was a dollar thirty-nine, maybe occasionally a dollar forty-nine. When we launched our 
little cups at 69 cents. That, those were the days of three for a dollar, you know, maybe, maybe 49 cent yogurt. So we were, on the one hand, they, they, they loved the idea of more, you know, penny profit at the shelf, but on the other, they just feared that the consumer wouldn't take to it. The other, of course, was that um, they were concerned that our kind of stridency about no antibiotics, no hormones, uh, no pesticides, no herbicides might also reflect negatively on the rest of the category. But, of course, that's now a, a distant memory as every, literally every retailer and now every multinational have capitalized on, on this trend. So while those early doubts were certainly a, a hurdle for us, we, we were over to, uh, able to overcome them, I, I think, for two reasons. Uh, one, our products tasted fantastic, and two, um, as I say, we were the cleaner label, uh, particularly with uh, baby boomer moms, and now, of course, this is doubly so with millennials. You know, every statistic uh, shows you that millennials want to know everything. They want it all, and they want to know how it's made, what's in it. They know about GMOs. It's interesting to hear the comment from Gary Hirschberg because his big realization was that organic was going to become a thing. And I mean, it's easy to think now, oh, organic food is everywhere. I mean, you see organic food in Walmart and Kroger, but that goes back to a time when it was still pretty niche. You know, I mean, these guys were looked at as hippies up in New Hampshire who were, you know, doing this um, touchy-feely thing. You know, I think at the time, it really wasn't viewed as something that was going to go mainstream, but it is a good indication kind of of how these trends change and how sort of one company that's on the cutting edge of these things can shake up an industry. Right. The whole organic movement is part of increasingly health-conscious consumers wanting to eat things that are better for them. And that's really a big part of the promise with Greek yogurt, too. It's high in protein, and whether it's true or not, the sense is that it's part of a nutritious diet. That's right. And then you fast forward to 2007, and Greek yogurt comes onto the scene. And, you know, Greek yogurt is incredibly popular in Europe and Canada as well. But it's just not eaten by Americans or was not eaten by Americans at all, really, until um, Chobani shows up on the scene. You know, Hamdi Ulakaya, the founder, is a Turkish immigrant, bought an old dairy plant in upstate New York and started making kind of recipes that he knew from Turkey. 2007, he's selling Chobani out of the back of his car. And, you know, you fast forward 10 years, Chobani hits nearly $2 billion in sales. You know, they operate this massive yogurt plant in Idaho now, in addition to upstate New York. And, you know, it was a couple of things. I think it was, number one, the, the protein was was a really big factor as far as getting people to to eat Greek yogurt. And it is really amazing when you think of a, a company that didn't exist now accounts for essentially 50% of the overall yogurt market, a $9 billion industry. And that lit a fuse on the rest of the yogurt market. We saw all sorts of different upstarts start Greek yogurt companies, as well as other kinds like French yogurt and Australian yogurt, and also the big players trying to jump on board too with their own versions of Greek yogurt and other kinds of add-ins that they thought might be able to boost sales. It's also prompted big deals in the industry. The big change of late, obviously, is that all the big players are in it. You know, you can't really go a week without uh, one of them, Unilever, Campbell's, uh, Lactalis, which just bought Stonyfield, paid a very handsome price for it, uh, Danone, and you know all the others are uh, this sort of a feeding frenzy here. With and, and you really see it in the multiples, which are quite crazy, I think. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Big food, you know, gets a lot of criticism for not being able to innovate and being too slow. But, you know, they certainly see the numbers like everybody else. So when Chobani burst onto the scene, Dannon said, OK, everybody wants Greek yogurt. We'll put out Oikos, which is their Greek brand. So they were all kind of quick to respond. And obviously, retailers see this, too. They're saying, wow, look at this growth in the dairy case. Let's put some more products on there. Let's give more space. And, you know, space is really at a premium when you talk about refrigerated and frozen sections of the store. It's not like, okay, we just can pull out these potato chips and put this yogurt in. It's a very sort of, um, it's in a lot of ways a finite thing because of uh, how expensive it is to keep stuff refrigerated. So Chobani definitely, I think, brought a lot of attention to innovation in the category. And you saw just sort of a, um, a cascade of new products coming to the market over the last couple of years. And the old standbys of the yogurt world aren't going to give up very easily. Like you said, General Mills and Dannon are pushing out new innovations to try to keep up. That's right. So, I mean, as we're talking about, Greek really exploded and the sales numbers have been up, up, up. But if you look now, 10 years into Greek, yogurt has really started to slow down. Greek is down a bit. You know, there's different explanations for that. But overall, the yogurt category is down. It's largely because of how bad Yoplait has been for General Mills. I mean, last year was down double-digit percentage points, and that's kind of pulling the whole category down, which, as we just talked about, that freaks everybody out because now the retailers are looking at this and saying it's down 3%, it's down 4%. Should we start giving less space? But what's happened is you know, the big guys basically are trying to kind of take their market share back. For General Mills, they came out with a French product called We. Um, it's sold in glass jars, and it's their attempt to kind of go after the the premium market, you know, and it's sort of a Greek type yogurt. It has more protein. And then when you look at Dannon, the big thing for them has been a push towards non-GMO yogurt. So for Dannon, the largest seller of yogurt in the US, the big bet is that consumers will gravitate to yogurt made without GMOs. Dannon was founded in 1942 by an immigrant who had a a thriving yogurt business in Europe and um, escaped to the United States and built his business here using his um, expertise and know-how and really brought the concept of prepared yogurt to the United States. That's Michael Newworth, a spokesman for Danone Wave, which owns Dannon. It started off as plain, simple plain yogurt and over time evolved into a lot of different types of varieties, beginning in five years later in 1947 with the introduction of fruit on the bottom. He introduced a light product, varieties that were made just for kids, and varieties that had special cultures called probiotics. And today we're seeing more and more interest in preferences for non-GMO project verified varieties. So we are the first to offer non-GMO project verified varieties of yogurt for um, um, some of our brands. For a company of Dan and size, producing non-GMO yogurt is a big undertaking and required major changes to their supply chain. About 
seven years ago, in 2010, we started to work more directly with the dairy farmers that provide us with milk. Prior to that, we had bought milk through a co-op and didn't really know the, the farms and the farmers. Now that we know who's making the milk, we could go upstream and work with them to develop specific types of products that would be of um, that would fulfill this increasing interest for non-GMO project verified products. And that would also enable us to measure things like our um, our environmental impact on the milk. And so based on the unique relationship with the farmers, plus the interest of shoppers to look for these products increasingly, we started to work about a year and a half ago to develop the feed supply that could feed those cows and, um, and ultimately be non-GMO project verified, which is the case now as we're introducing our first Danin and Danimals branded products that are non-GMO project verified. Despite the fact that they have far more resources and more years in the business, big players are fighting an uphill battle. Consumers are still attracted to younger, fresher brands that seem to resonate because they're perceived as more authentic. One of these challengers is Noosa, an Australian-style yogurt brand that hit $163 million in sales last year, up from just $6 million in 2011. For Noosa's founder, Coel Tomei, it wasn't about trying to replicate what happened with Greek yogurt. She just wanted to fill a hole that she saw in the market. I founded Noosa in 2009 with Rob Graves, who is a fourth-generation dairy farmer. And essentially, I was bringing a recipe from Australia that was whole milk infused with honey and just probably the most delicious thing that I'd ever tasted. So really, the hole in the market was my stomach. That was sort of the real sort of motivation is that I really wanted to eat this yogurt more than once a year. From the point that I discovered it in Australia and coming back to the U.S., I just I couldn't find anything quite like it. That was sort of the inspiration of like, okay, this could be something that could fill a void, not just for myself, but for other people in the U.S. Yogurt sales have slowed in recent months, due in large part to the struggles of Yoplait, whose slump has weighed on the industry. But Noosa thinks there's still room for growth. You know, the category has definitely flattened. And um, because we've had such, you know, this amazing run, I think people, um, both from a consumer and, and retail buyers, are really looking for that next big thing because it's been such a growth driver in not just our category, but in the whole grocery store. And, um, you know, we like to think that Noosa is part of the next big thing. But, you know, really, when you look at what's going on, when you sort of drill down into the category, it's really premium yogurt is is driving that growth. And I think that is really because, you know, the premium brands, you know, Noosa sort of leading that charge um, are really more connected into what millennials want uh, from food brands. And that is, you know, clean ingredients, real food, but also pushing sort of the boundaries on innovation. So, um, you know, I think it really is the premium players that are, you know, where the next uh, sort of growth is going to come from and is coming from. And, you know, obviously, when you look at sort of the rest of the country and, or the rest of the world, you know, when you look at consumption, the U.S. still lags. So really thinking about, you know, how can you take yogurt from more of this, you know, traditional breakfast 
time to going into different day parts and thinking of it as a snack or as a dessert and really being able to sort of build that consumption in an exciting way. And while sales are flat, Dannon and General Mills are both trying to push into premium yogurt, which seems to be resonating with customers. You know, I think the legacy brands really are understanding that it is the premium brands that are driving this growth and how can they sort of come in and play in that sphere, which is not always easy for them, you know, from a a lot of different reasons, from price to um, really being able to get sort of the share of voice with millennials who, you know, just think of them as sort of the dinosaurs of the category and not really people that can innovate and do interesting things. We talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the show, but to pull it all together, what does what's happening in yogurt mean for the rest of the packaged food industry? Well, I mean, I think with yogurt, as we said, that the big thing here is that the upstart brand, the challenger brand, has become the leading brand. So you've seen Chobani kind of take over and, you know, Greek yogurt has slowed down a bit, but Chobani's had a lot of success with a product they called Flip, which is, you know, basically yogurt with little pieces of almonds or chocolate on top and you mix it in. And, you know, General Mills now has a product like that. Nusa has come out with a product like that. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see the next few years whether they can reignite growth. I mean, the big thing is they need to get more Americans to eat yogurt. We're still way behind Europe and Canada when it comes to per capita consumption. So if this category is going to sort of go through a rebirth, another rebirth, it's going to key on kind of more people coming in. And, you know, big thing right now is everybody's looking for the quote unquote next Greek. And, you know, you talk to people and it's just not a slam dunk as far as whether that's coming or whether it's going to be sort of much more of a slog after we've seen, like I said, 10 years of really strong growth. But for other kinds of food and drink companies, I think that this phenomenon is is pretty scary if you're a big company and you're looking at the fact that in yogurt, this upstart was really able to to overtake the incumbent players. I mean, big companies just, even though they have every possible resource, it's hard for them to figure out how to pivot quickly and attract the same consumers that startups have found really willing to try their product. Yeah, there's no question about that. And and as we see more and more, honestly, one of the things to mention is is that more and more shopping is going to start to happen online. And these upstart brands are also very, very good at kind of building their brands online because that's that's what they're forced to do. They don't have the money for TV ads or Super Bowl ads. So a lot of these brands are sort of digitally native, uh, to use the term, and they're really good at it. And I, I think you're right that these other big food and beverage companies are looking at yogurt and saying, we have to make sure that doesn't happen to us. And maybe they benefit from that of sort of looking and saying, how did Chobani do this? I mean, there hadn't been innovation in that category. Why was somebody able to come in with this innovation and sort of take over the category and you know there's all across the food landscape i think there are examples of some complacency on the part of the big guys and they're just not good at moving quickly and the trends right now move faster than they ever have with social media and you know it's like they see a lot of tweets about kale and they say oh it looks seems like this kale's a thing you know like maybe we should do something with kale and then it's 3 years later before the kale product comes out and the trend has moved on so I think, you know, it's not going to get any easier for the big food and beverage companies. And certainly this yogurt example becomes kind of a lesson for them to make sure that uh, they try to protect their market share. Right. I mean, it's much easier to make an incremental change on a core product like what Dannon is doing with GMO free. That, That seems to be easier to get through the many ranks of people you have to go to for approval at a giant company. 
instead of trying out a whole new product where there's no proven market and you don't know if consumers are going to like it. And that seems to be pretty tough at a big business. And it makes sense because if it is a fail, you have to talk about it on the quarterly earnings call and people are going to be furious. That's a big part of the pressure, I think, is just the inability to fail. You know, these companies want to be sure. They want to market test and get 20 executives in the room to all give their green light. And when they move, when these billion-dollar companies move, they want to make sure they're right. And I think that that unwillingness to fail has been a big part of the problem. And I mean, we should mention that, you know, for a company like Dannon, and as big as it is to say that we're only going to serve non-GMO yogurt, that, that was a big change. You know, it's a major supply chain challenge and a lot that goes into that. So, you know, we have to give Dannon, I think, a little bit of credit for, for trying to be aggressive and for hitting on something they think is going to work. But there's no question that, you know, these companies need to do more to sort of enable their structures within the companies to be able to react more quickly to these trends because it's only going to move faster, especially as Amazon gets more into this business. You're just going to see more and more disruption. Right. The real question is, for big food, who's going to be next? That's it for this episode of Material World. Thanks a lot for listening. For past episodes, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you listen to shows like this. If you want to know more about what's happening with big food and grocery stores, follow me, Craig Giamona, on Twitter, at SitgaWriter. And for more on all the things you drink and smoke, Jenny's at Jenny M. Kaplan. Material World is produced by Magnus Henriksen and Liz Smith. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. We'll be back in two weeks. Yeah, I like that. Very ominous. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.